Welcome to the Geek Geek Podcast, where apparently you can take the sky from us. I'm Void, and I'm here with my co-host, Beige. Don't take my sky! Yeah, today we're going to talk about Joss Whedon, because we mentioned it the other week, and we were like, hey, we haven't done that yet, and that's kind of amazing. So, Joss Whedon, you have a lot more to say than I do, so I'm going to go first. And I just wanted to say, like, when I think of him, I kind of think about dialogue, like really good dialogue, good witty banter, you know, back and forth between characters. And then he does a lot of things with female characters that are maybe not starting off in a powerful place and kind of like finding power over time and coming into their own. And that's kind of like a lot of the core of what I think of of Joss Whedon. Yeah, I think that's what a lot of people end up thinking of with him. And there's so much like... If you don't know what he did and who he is, he did Buffy the Vampire Slayer. That is the main thing that he's known for, but he also did the Avengers movies and uh, leading into the MCU. So all of this is like who he is, and people tend to lump him in generally with Buffy and Angel and being the being the strong female character writer, but he really is more than that. that there's a lot more to his storytelling than just that. Yeah, and both of us have, like, read and watched most of his stuff, so I mostly want to get into the examples and just kind of talk about the different things that he's put out there that people would know. But before we do that, I asked you to kind of give a quick overview because I know that you know way more about him than I do. So I think the challenge here is you keeping it not gigantic in your explanation. (laughs) Yeah, and, you know, the reason that I know so much is pretty much because of my wife. She was huge into Buffy before we started dating and tried to get me to watch it, and I hated it. I watched the first season of Buffy at at her request and despised it and just let season two sit and paid for Netflix just to let the disc sit forever. And I finally went back to it and all that. And then once I got into it, I became a huge fan. And the reason she became a fan and was able to get me into it is because of the academic aspect of it. We knew her mentor in college was was named Cynthia Burkhead. And Cynthia was the protege of the guy who started... TV studies and academia. Like, he was one of the first scholars to look at television as literature. And I think he did it with Twin Peaks. So, that's kind of a third generation TV Scott, TV and film scholar where Jennifer came in. And so I just kind of rode her coattails into that and started going to like the Slayage Academic Conference. And so that has really colored the way that I see Joss Whedon because I don't just see him as a fanboy like a lot of people do. I see the literary aspects of it and not all of it is good. Don't get me wrong. I can look at it from a critical literary standpoint and be able to divorce the feelings I have that even though I enjoy something, I can see it as being kind of terrible or see the good in part of it. And so like I know He went to school with Michael Bay, and we'll talk about this a little bit later, Uh, and I'm not going to get into a Michael Bay bashing kind of session because I don't like him, but you can see that they they came together, they were, they, hmm. They both went to film school at the same time with the same teachers, and they kind of had this rivalry going on because their styles are so different. And like I said, we'll talk about that a little bit later, but you can kind of see where they branched off. And that's been one way I've looked at film in general is seeing 
between those two kinds of creators that you have the the eye candy, all of this, you know, the the Transformers kind of, of just crazy action. And Joss Whedon tends to put a lot more care into crafting it. And it just depends on who your audience is. And Joss Whedon knows exactly who his audience is. And like, I have taught Joss Whedon that I am not, not him personally. I have used his texts in my classroom. I've taught Dr. Horrible in composition. I've used Buffy in various classes. I used to teach Firefly to talk about genre conventions and narrative structure. I just pretty much everything. I even use his quote that there's a religion in narrative that, that not saying that there is, that it's spiritual, not saying that, that, you know, storytelling is a religion, but it's saying that it's something that brings us together, that we can get, we can be a part of something larger than us together and that's where narr- why narrative is so important that that there is a, an element of spirituality in it and I've used that to teach ancient literature I when I do my did my world literature 201 classes which started with Gilgamesh and the ancient Sumerians I would go into that I would use Joss Whedon to lead into the very first literature that we would that we ever wrote because it all comes back to the same idea of we're sharing this together. So that's kind of where I think Joss Whedon would want us to start with this, to be like, yeah, he tells stories. They, they just happen to be about these people. Yeah, and you're coming at it from the academic side, whereas I'm coming at it from, like, I like his work and I found it organically. Um, the earliest memories I have are probably my mom watching Buffy and like she would okay. pick out certain episodes that she thought were really good and kind of standalone and show them to me. And that was interesting, but it never really like I wasn't a big Buffy fan. Um, right. But then Firefly was one of those shows that I thought was really good. Um, and then there were other things too, like Dr. Horrible and then Dollhouse and the Avengers and just like more and more over time realizing that, oh, hey, I really like this. Who made it? And mm-hmm. then it's like, oh, he was, you know, he was the writer or he was the executive producer, or the director or all of those things or he was tied to it somehow. So I found out about him slowly over time. And then I put together that like, oh, he was involved in a bunch of things I already like. And then I could see the style tie in between them with like the way that he does dialogue is kind of and that's why i said that up front is the dialogue always sticks out to me as very whedon-esque i suppose Mm -hmm. Um, which is actually one of the probably the major whedon side on the internet is called whedon-esque oh really that's cool i didn't even know that um so yeah i'm coming at it from that side of just kind of being a fan of the work and then after realizing that i liked most of his stuff i always pay attention when he does a new thing now even if it doesn't end up being for me it's always worth my time to just kind of like take a look at it and see um and then after after all that sometime in the last year i actually went and i read his I don't know if it was an autobiography or a biography on him or something about his his life and his works, but that was very fascinating, too. And I mean, that was one of those things where it's like you were writing down everything that he's touched, basically, since he became not necessarily since he became famous, but since he started like working in his professional life. And we're just going to run it run through it here kind of in. Well, some of these things overlap. So, no, it's not exactly in chronological order, but it's roughly in chronological order. And one of the things I will probably missed a bunch of it, too. But these are just the things that like off the top of my head and thinking of these are the ones that were the most standout to me. Right. So he wrote a script or he was a script doctor on Roseanne. He was part of like the writing team for a little bit. Yeah, He was part of the writing team. Yeah, that was his first TV job, actually. And you go back and watch it. And like, I 
it, it kind of reminds me of just childhood for me that my family used to just love sitting around and watching Roseanne and I didn't like it then, but I can go back and watch it now and I see Whedon's hand in it, that I know he was learning how to do what he does during that TV show. Yeah, and then after that, he was a script doctor for a long time, and that was kind of his yeah. main thing. So he did, he touched like Toy Story, Titan AE, Alien Resurrection, Atlantis, Speed. He did some X-Men work, and I think there were a ton of other ones in there too, but those are kind of like yeah. the standout ones. And he's always said that he he worked on X-Men, the very first X-Men movie, extensively, and maybe two of his lines of dialogue were actually left in, and they were delivered poorly, he said. <laughs> So you you wouldn't want to he and he also does not like his name being on Alien Resurrection uh because he's just like yeah everybody has a stinker. He was like not good, didn't do a good job. <laughs> so that gets us to Buffy, which is kind of like it's the thing that he's the most well known for even though yeah. we're a ways beyond it here. Buffy was like 1997 to 2003 and it's it's the one that just everybody knows him for. And like you said, it's the one that you've studied extensively mm-hmm. and it applies really well if you're going to take it into an academic setting. But yeah, I don't know. What do you have to say about Buffy? It's probably um, better because like I have favorite episodes and I've kind of talked about them, right? I, I really like Once More With Feeling and I really yes. like, again, I'm forgetting it. Hush is Hush the name Hush, of that episode? Yeah. yeah, Hush is the other so, one. There's another probably two or three episodes I can name off the top of my head that I really liked. But outside of that, Buffy, I thought was okay, and I didn't absolutely love it. But you have come around to loving it as a whole. I absolutely adore Buffy, and part of it is because I despised it for so long that I can really appreciate it now. But I had a friend in high school who watched Buffy, and I made fun of him so hardcore that it was just not even... I mean, I was relentlessly cruel to this guy because of it. And when I started watching it, when Jennifer wanted me to, I hated it. Season one of Buffy was terrible. And now after having seen everything, having studied all of this, we just went back and started watching season one, not long ago. And it's really good because we know what to expect at the end of the show because we can see, oh, this is ridiculous. That, oh, they didn't know where they were going with this yet. Oh, this is them finding their feet. And at about the midway of season two, it, they, they figured out where they were going with it. And what I think is really, really, really fantastic about Buffy is that it's an ensemble cast and every single character who is in there gets a real characterization get gets real characterization gets a real arc even to the point where a side character in season one may become a plot point in season three when they go back and be like oh yeah that would be fun to do where there was a lot of care in crafting this narrative and part of it fell apart there's not it's not all good there are filler episodes there are just kind of st- stupid awful garbage episodes like every show has but overall for seven seasons the show is consistent in that the characters are people you just kind of want to be friends with that you feel things with them that they're they're it's very much a 90s and early 2000s show but it's dealing with things that you don't often see in tv of that time uh dealing a lot of it is with like 
gay and lesbian relationships that Tara and Willow, spoiler alert, uh, become a couple. And I showed an episode in class for one of my for one of my composition classes, and I had a student come up after me like, I watch Buffy all the time, and I thought they were just really good friends when I was little. This is the first time I realized they were a couple. And that stood out to me because it means that nothing is so overt that it's it's there for everybody. And even younger kids aren't going to be exposed to anything their parents might not want them to be. If that makes sense, that uh, if they're if a kid can watch this and see something and them not have to have a a discussion about sexuality with their parents when they're 10 years old, you know? Yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of like interesting little tangential things about Buffy like that that are totally true. And I know you just kind of picked one of many. Right. But the reason that Buffy didn't grab me and it just doesn't work for me the way it does for you is one of those things you already said. It's it's a 90s show. It is yes. 23 episodes or 20, you know, 22 to 24, but 23 episodes per season for like seven seasons. And it mm-hmm. is a monster of the week show at its core mm-hmm. because it has to fit into that 23 episode every year kind of mold that they had at the time. And and I'm, I'm not going to advocate for redoing Buffy. Like, there's no way you can recapture no. the time and the people and everything about it. But if hypothetically Buffy could be redone with the same people and the same talent, but you could turn it into a Netflix show that's like five to ten episodes per season, I bet It'd I would be love it because I really like the core narrative that they have there. And you were telling me, I think think a week ago a couple of weeks ago that you essentially did that that you hit the core episodes and watched all the way through that way at one point didn't you yeah that's how i watched through it so i tried to watch well i did i watched season one for the most part um i tried to get through it and by the end of season one i was just like i can't do this it doesn't work for me so i went and i looked up all the rest of the seasons and i looked for best episodes and then i looked for like I don't even remember how I found it, but it was basically like key episodes to the narrative. So they weren't always necessarily the ones that made like the top 10 lists, but they were the ones that people all said, this has like major narrative points that you need to understand to keep going with the series. So I made myself some kind of like super best of list and narrative Mm, heavy list. And that's what I watched. That's what I watched through the rest of the series. If you haven't watched any of Buffy, I really, really suggest that you watch the episode Hush because it is probably one of the best episodes of television I've ever seen. I think it's in season three. No, it's season four, and it's episode 10. I just now Googled that when I said it. And it is pretty much done without dialogue and for a guy like joss whedon who is known for his dialogue for the best episode to be the one without dialogue it will show you what the show was capable of doing and it's hilarious it is it is legitimately terrifying at times when you're looking at it from a horror perspective and it's just good and it's interesting to see that a show in the 90s and 2000s was able to experiment with television in a way that most shows aren't willing or able to do now and i would also say once more with feeling is a really good place to kind of jump on just knowing that you're not going to know every narrative thread what's going on but you'll get kind of the high level view of enough of it and you can see 
some of the writing at its best. Um, yes. But yeah, okay, so and that's Buffy. Do you have anything else to say about Buffy before we move on? Because otherwise this will turn into a Buffy episode. Well, this will tr- uh, kind of uh, segue into the next one, I think, where the early episodes, the early seasons have a character named Angel, and I despised Angel. I don't like dark and brooding characters, and he was one of the major reasons I didn't like the show at first was because I did not like the relationship between him and Buffy. Well, in season three-ish, he goes and gets his own show. He was so popular with viewers, he got his own show. And I think that the TV show Angel, which ran from 97 to 2004 to the year after Buffy, is a much better show than Angel because they had already learned what works and what doesn't. And the characters and the dynamics with all of the ensemble and Angel, I think, work just as good, if not better, than they do in Buffy because it starts off on that high note and it is so good. And I have you watched, seen Angel? No, I haven't watched any of it, but I have heard that from other people that Angel's a really good one. So that's that's one of the few things in here that we're talking about that I actually haven't watched. It's it's so good. There is my dad died in 2012 and he finished Angel before I did that. We got him to watch Buffy and Angel. And before he died, he's told me that he that he said, son, thank you for making me watch that. I'm glad I didn't miss out on it. And to me, that's the highest praise for Angel that anyone could possibly give that my dad had had heart trouble for 12 years and for him to say I'm glad I didn't miss out on that when it came to Joss Whedon's Angel it was like yeah this has to be good yeah that's a that's a ringing endorsement um and that kind of gets us into Firefly which is right. probably at this point it might be his best known work just because of all the controversy around it I don't know probably all yeah. the people who associate him with Firefly even know that he was involved with Buffy which is kind of weird to say but I mean we're far enough away from Buffy now yeah. Firefly is probably more well known honestly yeah depending on who you're talking to because it depends on which group of fandoms you're talking about that Firefly like you said, it's just got the controversy around it. I mean, it was a one season show that they didn't let fit that Fox didn't let finish. They didn't know how to market. It's very, very hard to market a space Western in the early 2000s where right now that would run great on television. And part of it is because it ran so poorly in 2002. Well, and like one of the other things is that Fox actually aired Firefly out of order and yeah. the narrative suffers extremely if you do not watch this show in order. Um, yes. So they just, I mean, they kind of sent it out to die. And then I think partway through, they actually changed the time that it was on, which is another yeah. thing you do when you're ready to kill a show. So it was never really given a chance. Yeah, they weren't willing to give this a chance. I mean, they they were they just changed the day and the time and everything. And one of the things that I do with this one, but uh, when I teach it, is because they aired the episodes out of order, I show my students the one that they actually aired first that I show them the train job, which is a standalone episode, which has its own contained narrative. And they hated it. Like, for the most part, the students do not like it because you don't know who the characters are. Their relationships are being referenced and they're like, what? Who are these people and why should I care? I'm like, this is the first episode, you guys. Then I show them an episode called Ariel, which they're like, yeah, that's a better episode. That is that is so much better. You see, you know, you know what these people are doing and who they are. And I use that to talk about how you build up character rising action, all of this stuff. But Fox didn't get it because there was a two hour premiere. There was a 
a two-part pilot for this that sets everything up called Serenity, which is what the movie was called later. And it set everything up beautifully. But if you start with the train job, which would be, I think, episode four within the structure, I can't remember exactly, but you're missing a lot that you're not going to like this immediately because it's like, oh, yeah, this is a generic Western episode and they're I guess they're in space. Yeah, but at least in the end, um, the fans got to see like some kind of ending for it, which was Serenity, yes. which came out in 2005, which we're jumping ahead a little right. bit here in the order. But it ties in with Firefly and Serenity basically like takes where the show just the show just stopped. It didn't even have an end of season one. I think there's 14 or 15 episodes and it just ends. It ends on yep. no kind of note at all. It's just another episode and then it stops. So Serenity let people get to see the end of this as a series and yeah. it it's okay as a self-contained movie but really it's basically like a movie sized end to season one and it's the finishing of the narrative and i know that people would love for firefly to come back in some form or another but it's just kind of like let it it's let it die so yeah let's sit let it die like it's it's been dead it has tried to come back like we got serenity out of it and we just kind of have to accept it and just you know let joss we can do the next thing that could be even better yeah. you know but I mean, I saw Serenity first when it came out in theaters. I didn't know anything about Firefly. So I saw Serenity and I got super hyped because I didn't know anything about this universe, anything at all about the the crowd fund, not crowdfunding, but just the the fan base that, that got this movie to come about. I didn't know anything at all about this. I thought it was going to be the next Star Wars because it was just amazing. I was blown away. And then my friend Nikki told me, he was like, no, you're never going to see another one of those. Here's some DVDs. Watch Firefly. And yeah. I got I got hooked because of the dialogue, the characters, the just the unique setting that it all was. And Eat Serenity didn't do as well as it could have because once again the the company got involved and told them no horses that they were going to market it as a sci-fi movie instead of a sci-fi western. So a lot of the the draw of Firefly itself, this western motif, I mean it's a western narrative for goodness sake. I mean they they have they're cattle rustling. They're literally cattle rustling through part of the series. And they say, no horses. And so they change everything around to make it more of a stark sci-fi world, which works. I mean, it's a good movie, but they, they have to reset because it's a movie. They have to reset the character dynamics. I mean, there's a tracking shot at the beginning setting up all of the interactions and relationships for the viewer. And Jennifer did work on this in her master's program where they basically reset Simon and Mal's story because... In the show, Mal had accepted Simon. Mal had been like, yeah, you're part of the crew now. And at the beginning of Serenity, he's like, you be careful or, you know, I'm going to put you and your sister off this ship. And I was like, no, you wouldn't. They had to completely reset that for drama within the movie because of what the studio wanted. And so Serenity in a lot of ways works and in a lot of ways doesn't. And they tried to cram, I think, two seasons worth of information in there, which is why it feels very rushed at times with especially the river stuff moving forward and the Miranda and uh, getting the signal out. So lots of stuff about Firefly. Yeah, and Firefly and Serenity taken as a whole, that's probably one of those things where we could do like we could all watch it together, everyone who listens yeah. and us, and we could come back and do a whole episode on those later. So I don't want to dwell too much. Do you have any last thing to say about Firefly before we keep it moving? Uh 
Well, the theme song, it has a theme song. It came around in the time that TV shows had these really, really goofy theme songs a lot of times and credit sequences. And I hated this theme song. That's where our title today came from for you guys. It was You Can't Take the Sky From Me. And it was just this this song that Joss Whedon did. And I hated it so, so very much. And it was just cringe, made me cringe every time I heard it. And then I got used to it as I really started rewatching the series and loving it so much. And when my dad died, I needed something that was totally comforting. Jennifer booted up the DVD. And just when that music started playing, I just started crying and sank in and just felt like I was at home because it was something that I cared about and a narrative. It was that religion and narrative thing where just everything felt as though I was a part of something and that there was comfort in this, I just sank in and it really helped part of my grieving process to have something that was so just encompassing and and just felt so comfortable. And it was because of that theme song that was terrible and and eventually became something that I will never let go of. Yeah, so we should definitely, definitely do something with Firefly and Serenity later as a, as a bigger group i think there's a lot there that we could dig into um yeah yes but for today we got to keep moving along with yeah. joss whedon sorry um but <laughs> so and, and i can talk about this next one a little bit because this is one that it or, um, it's the astonishing x-men and it's yeah. a comic run that he wrote and this is one of the last pieces of his that I actually found out about. Um, I read this oh, earlier. Really? Yeah, I read this sometime in the last year, um, but it came out in 2004. So yeah. it's it was like a new run of X-Men. Um, it's And man, guys, I know I've talked about it before, but I hate the way that comics are named and numbered. <laughs> it is brutal. Like they use the same adjectives and the same nouns and stuff over and over again to the point where you can't find the comic you're looking for. So... If you want to look this one up, it is The Astonishing X-Men, the 2004 to 2013 run of it, because there's a bunch of different runs of Astonishing X-Men. Um, good luck. Maybe just search Astonishing X-Men Joss Whedon, and you'll probably find it. But it's uh, it's issue number... Not in Marvel Unlimited. <laughs> yeah. It's issue number 1 through 24, and then... There's one other at the end, but it's not number 25. It's like a giant-sized Astonishing X-Men. Just, they just make it impossible. Why do comics They even... did this with Old Man Logan, too. That was an issue that I had looking at an issue. <laughs> and that was what I had when I was looking up all the Old Man Logan stuff, is they did an extra, like, final version of it, and I think a giant-sized one. I was like, come on, guys. It's, it's just so hard to, like find them and just read through in order that comics yeah. make it way too hard to get into sometimes um they do but anyway it's a really really good run of the x-men um i've never read read any other x-men that drew me in like this and i've tried to read lots and lots of x-men and i bounce off of it a lot of the time um this one is super good and it kind of focuses on kitty pride and she returns to the x-men and becomes basically like a mentor teacher almost kind of a leader but not exactly the leader of the x-men in a way yeah and it just has this fantastic arc that runs just long enough to wrap up and then it's done so this is one where you don't feel like you have to keep reading 100 issues or 200 issues like seriously you go read issue one to issue 24 and then you read that giant sized one to finish it off and then just step away from it because it's it's 
a really good narrative and it's self-contained in that even though it goes beyond it with other creators other writers other artists and stuff like don't even bother like this is it's good on its own and i didn't like the rest of the astonishing run when i read them and so the first 24 25 ish episodes here issues here with the giant size and all that were great Uh, there's also a motion comic if you've never seen it that it used to be on netflix i'm not sure if it still is where they did the first like i think dozen issues maybe where they made it into an adaptation with just the they had voiced it they had a little bit of animation with the panels moving motion comics are great i love them but they have to abridge them some but it will give you a very quick idea of what the comics are if you can find those they also did this with the buffy comics where they continued season eight in comic book form where they did motion comics of it and they were actually very good but very hard to get into because they didn't use the series voices but the Buffy and Astonishing X-Men motion comics are both very good if you ask me and I hate motion comics but if you guys like it at least it's there for you to get into um okay next up is Dr. Horrible which is probably my favorite thing that Joss Whedon has ever done it's a musical it's like three episodes but each one is only like 15 to 20 minutes so in total you're not looking at a giant thing that you're watching it's like less... i think it's four yeah i think it's 43 minutes long yeah it, it's like less than an hour start to finish for this entire narrative and it's written as a musical and it's a fantastic musical and it has lots of good actors and it has felicia day it has neil patrick harris it has nathan fillion and the fact alone that i know a bunch of the names of the people in it should tell you that they are good people that i've actually paid attention to because i almost never know actors and actresses names and it's just great i'm like, smiling so it. big yeah and this that, one, this, I is know, a, this, this is astonishing for me like the x-men oh <laughs> man and this is a weird one because it actually came out of the writer's strike because yeah. none of them were working on anything like real because the writers were striking in 2008 and they wanted to do something on their own on the side. And this was I can't remember if it was crowdfunded or Internet funded or there was something weird with the way they distributed it because well, of the writer's strike. I think this one was completely funded by him, that this one was a self-funded thing to okay. be able to to because the entire thing about the writer's strike was that. People were just starting to get into internet video. This happened in 2008, and nobody's contracts had any kind of internet clauses in them. And the writers were getting paid pennies for things that they wrote on DVD and video. And I think they made like a quarter per DVD that was sold. And they were making nothing, essentially, on on any kind of internet streaming, any kind of digital download, because it wasn't in their contracts. So the writers striked on this because they're like we're doing our job and you're not paying us so nah and when this happened Whedon was really you know obviously he's a writer so he was anti-establishment on this essentially and said if you're not going to pay us for putting out our content then we can do it ourselves and the big guys were like nah you can't do that by yourself bro and we was like just you wait it's like Hamilton uh, only like eight, nine years ago. And they made Dr. Horrible as proof that web content could stand alone and make money and tell its own story that people could find it. And when the writer strike was over, they put this out uh, and they did it serially. They did not put it up at the same time. You had to wait. I can't remember if it was a week or two weeks uh, to be able to watch all of the episodes because they did it in not, not binge like we're doing now where, you know, house of cards comes up and you watch nine episodes in like 
I don't know, seven hours at like until like 3 a.m., but you had to wait on this. So it was a traditional TV schedule kind of way, but on the internet. And the studio's like, this is not going to work. Well, he ended up making more money from Dr. Horrible than he made on The Avengers. That Just think about that for a second. The Avengers, the Marvel MCU biggest movie that's like, that, that redefined how we see movies. He made more money from doing an independent internet video called Dr. Horrible Sing Along Blog by doing it himself. It made, it was number one on iTunes immediately. I mean, all uh, well, not immediately because they actually delayed purchase of it. You could watch it for free. The thing is, he put this up to watch for free on the website. Then months later or a month later, however long it was, that's when you could pay for it and it was still available for free and he still made more money from it than the Avengers. And so he kind of proved that web content and web video was possible and made everybody redefine and reassess how they approached that media, that medium. So we can thank him for what the internet is today. The way that we consume web content is because of Joss Whedon. Yeah, and the thing is, this came out in, like we said, 2008, and that's less than 10 years ago. All of this stuff was still going on. Like, the internet was not a proven form of video yet. And just think about where, like, YouTube is right now, you know? Yeah. It's it's crazy how far we've come. But Dr. Horrible sits in this, like, it's just, it's a unique spot in history, in the history of video and film and web content in general. So, it's a really good one. It's another one that I would gladly do a whole episode on, but we do have to keep yeah. moving. Sorry, I know well, I'm let like... Let me say one thing. Okay. Oh, I do want to say, for I know we've talked in the past about how to introduce your friends and family into something before. We've done the Star Wars and the video games. Let me say, if you have a friend or family member who is reticent to watch science fiction... Use Dr. Horrible sing-along blog because I've had students who rolled their eyes at me when I told them what we were watching in class and then come back the next day and show me that they had bought the soundtrack on iTunes that they couldn't stop listening to it and then would buy the video and they're like, I'm hooked. I'm going to listen and watch everything that this guy has done. So if you have people who are like that, show them Dr. Horrible and see because it it is kind of a gateway sci-fi thing because of just how unique it is. Yep, it's a good one. Okay, we got to keep going. Dollhouse is up next, 2009 okay. to 2010. And it was just two seasons because, and you told yep. me this last week, I didn't realize this, but he pre-negotiated two seasons no, like no, no, completely, No, 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 he did right? not pre-negotiate two. Well, you said he, he negotiated something so he wouldn't get screwed the same way he got screwed with Firefly, right? Well, he negotiated this with Elijah, Eliza Dushku, who played Faith and Buffy. She had a contract with Fox, and she had a, a sit-down meeting with Joss Whedon where they had lunch, and he went to the bathroom, and he came back and was like, okay, I have an idea for the show now. And so he, he literally thought of Dollhouse while he was peeing. And when she approached the the company at Fox, the executives at Fox, they said that they would go through with it. And so it had terrible ratings. Dollhouse, nobody likes Dollhouse because it took about five episodes for you to even understand what was going on, that it wasn't a monster of the week kind of, of show that wasn't just a bunch of one-offs. And by then the ratings were terrible. And Fox, who had already gotten a bad reputation for Firefly, knew that they could not cancel it. That they were like, if we cancel Dollhouse and we cancel another Joss Whedon show in the middle 
middle of its first season, we are never going to have an opportunity with these people ever again. We will alienate so many viewers. So they let it go and and guaranteed a second season for it then. And it was still up in the air, but that was the reasoning behind it. And season two did just as badly, but it wasn't up front. I mean, it was the reason because of Firefly, but it wasn't an initial thing. It was a more of a, oh, this is this is not doing well too, but we just can't. We just can't do it again. We can't let history repeat itself. And then, you know, they were, they just backed away during season two. They said, do whatever you want to do. Tell your story. You're not getting a season three. And t- season two is much better for it. I mean, the premise mm-hmm. of Dollhouse, which I don't think we even set up front, is basically if you need like an escape from your life or if you are in desperate need of money or whatever, you can go sign up to be part of this. It's called the Dollhouse. You know, that's where the show comes from. And you basically say your body is given over to them for a period of however many years you sign on for. And they like wipe all of your memory and they will like load you up with kind of matrix style, like whatever set of skills you need for the thing that you are doing that day or that week or however long. And then you have a handler who watches you. And after you complete your assignment or objective or whatever, you come back, you are wiped clean again, and then they load you up with the next set of whatever. And then after your body has gone through its contract, they reload you with all of your old memories from before you walked in there and they give Mm -hmm. you your money and they let you go back into the world. So it's all about these dolls in the dollhouse and the fact that it's kind of that AI artificial intelligence, except they're real people and their different memories start bleeding over and carrying over, even though they're supposed to be wiped every single time. And it's super interesting in how they handle it. The issue came in that you didn't actually see the complexities that were possible with this until you were already invested four to six hours. And that's why no one watched it, because if you're doing it every week, you're not going to wait a month and a half to even figure out what the show was about. But if you do, now that it's on video, now that it's on Netflix and all of this, I say video because I'm 75 years old. Now that it's on home video and you can watch it in your VCR, you need to be able to go and watch this. And probably the best episodes of the season are called Epitaph 1 and Epitaph 2 which are kind of end caps for the series that were only available after they aired, that they did not air these on TV. Fox still didn't air these to tie them together. They were only available on the DVD sets when they were released. Yep, and Dollhouse, it gets better as it goes along and the more you understand about it. So it's another one of those that was just kind of abandoned by the network and by the executives, and that's a very common theme with a lot of his work. But that gets us over into The Avengers, which... This is, I mean, short of, you know, Dr. Horrible, Sing Along Blog being my favorite, this is a very, very close second. And yeah. a lot of the time, it just depends what mood I'm in. But I, I love The <laughs> Avengers. The first movie, I've watched it, like, a lot. And I don't, I don't really rewatch movies. But The Avengers, just what it did for superhero films and comic films and where we are now in 2017, you can directly tie back to how the Avengers like brought everything together and kind of just changed the landscape of things. And it wouldn't have been possible with any other creator, I don't believe, because Joss Whedon had an entire career based around ensemble casts and bringing disparate people together that don't seem like they should be together and making it a very cohesive whole. That was a prevalent theme through Buffy and Firefly and Angel and Dollhouse and Astonishing X-Men. I'm scrolling up. Just all of these shows that he has done, that he is known for, it is for 
caretaking kind of outcast, disparate, like like I said, disparate characters that, that have little in common and making them seem like such a wonderful, natural, organic team up. He he, had, he worked his entire life to be able to make the Avengers. And initially, he even wanted to be a movie creator. Like, that was his entire purpose in film school was to, he wanted to make movies. He didn't want to do TV, but he really couldn't get the, he really couldn't get the, the jobs to do it. That was why his script doctor stuff was going so well. I mean, that he's, that was, he was working on it. And I think he even worked on the Buffy movie for a while. But when he finally got the Avengers, uh, David Lavery, the, the guy who created TV and film studies, essentially, well, TV studies, he he told me when I was taking his, uh, when I, the one PhD class I took was a cult TV class, and he told us in this class that it was right before the Avengers came out, that whether or not we ever see another Joss Whedon show will depend on the success of the Avengers, because he always wanted to be a film, uh, film director, and if this goes well, then we're just going to see movies from here on out, and if it goes poorly, he's going to have to lick his wounds and go back to TV where he came from. Either way, we win, but depending on the success of the Avengers, we'll show what we are what we're getting from him and you know all these years later that's exactly what's happening we haven't seen another joss whedon tv show but we've seen multiple movies and films so david lavery was absolutely right in that respect the avengers changed the way that he makes films and the way that we see films yeah the avengers is it's an amazing film and it's it's just it is very whedon-esque if you look at it and you understand everything else that he's done it fits in his wheelhouse so well so off of the Avengers, he moved on and he did Cabin in the Woods, which is totally different. And, and it's one he that I do it alone. Like I did. Yeah, I did. I have read a lot about Cabin in the Woods because okay, I find good. it super fascinating. I haven't watched it and I don't know if I'm going to just because like I don't like horror. And I know I know I know, you I know. Get it. it twists all of the horror conventions. It it, you know, makes fun of the horror genre itself. I just I don't I still whatever. It's still like horror at its core, which isn't my thing. It is. And it is very, very horror. Yeah. There, there's no way around those conventions. It does it in a way that as someone who likes horror, I look at it and I see it as a fantastic movie. But for you, I really don't know if you would like it. I know that you would like the Joss Whedon stuff because he was on, what's it called? The Second Crew. The uh, I, I, I don't remember how it, what the actual film term is off the top of my head. The, but he was... He filmed the second part of it, the secondary narrative, and Drew Goddard did the first. So I'm, I know you would like the Whedon stuff, but I don't think you would like the Goddard stuff, even though the characters are all good. The, uh, the, the acting is great. The take on horror is great, but I don't think you'd be able to get past the horror conventions. Yeah, but every time I see an article come up about Cabin in the Woods, I always read it because I, I love like what they did to twist things around. Mm -hmm. I think it's super fascinating. And like I said, I've read through a bunch of different like summaries and synopsis and stuff just so i know what people are talking about when they talk about this one so if yeah. you are a horror fan like seriously go watch cabin in the woods it's really good apparently. i wish it had been out yeah it came out in 2012 yep and i had taught a senior level uh 400 level horror literature class the spring before it came out and i said i never got to teach it again it was a one-off but i said that if i was ever going to teach that again i would put cabin in the woods as kind of the center of my literary analysis because it commentated so much on it commented so much on everything about horror from the audience to the conventions to the direction to just 
pretty much every last aspect of it, it had something to say in the narrative and, and the way that it was structured that you can't discuss modern horror without at least looking at it. Totally. Okay, and that gets us to 2013, which is Much Ado About Nothing, which I think is the only one on this list that I've seen that you have not. Is that right? I have not. I've not seen Much Ado About Nothing, even though I've heard it is brilliant. It is still Shakespeare. It, it Shakespeare. Uh, it's a Shakespeare script. It is an adaptation of Shakespeare. And anytime Jennifer and I have wanted to watch it, we haven't been in a mood to concentrate as hard to watch Shakespeare. Yeah, and this is one where if you are in a Shakespeare mood, it is good Shakespeare. You know, there's good Shakespeare and there's yeah. bad Shakespeare, just interpretations and the way that they approach it. It is good Shakespeare, but you do need to be in the mood for Shakespeare, which not a lot of us are a lot of the time. With that said, I think it's really interesting because he did this one between, I can't remember if it's between the Avengers and Age of Ultron, or if it was like yes. they did principal photography for Age of Ultron and then he needed a break. But he essentially shoved an entire movie creation in between two other projects when he was going to take a vacation he was supposed mm -hmm. to take a vacation and when he sat down to talk to his wife about what they were going to do for vacation she said you need a creative outlet that is not the avengers because your head has been in that for like so long now you need something different what do you want to do and he had been kicking around the idea of doing shakespeare um for a while and i guess like his entire professional career ever since he became you know, a name that people knew with Buffy. Right. Um, he had a core group of people that he would invite over and they would just off the cuff perform Shakespeare. And it was like their regular gatherings, right? So he had a constant rotating cast of all these people, you know, all of his regulars that appear throughout his work over and over again. He would have them come over and they would perform Shakespeare as a group and they would change parts. And, you know, they yep. would do like, oh, who would you cast next time? Or is there anyone else you know that we should invite over? And these like off the cuff Shakespeare performances got to the point where they said, why don't we just film one of these? Let's actually make it into a full feature-length film. So Much Ado About Nothing is shot in Joss Whedon's own house. And they shot it over the course of like a couple weeks. And it was only, I think it was only like four days of filming total, something like that. Whenever, yeah, it wasn't and, long no. at all. So it was a super short shoot over a hyper-compressed span of time that he shot and edited and put together over the course of what was supposed to be a vacation and then put it out into the world. So if you want to see Whedon's take on Shakespeare, it's it's good for that. But again, if you're not in a Shakespeare mood, don't go near it. That, Like I said, that's the only reason I haven't seen it, but I love all of the people in it because you're going to find those same people who have been in all of his other works who you love if you're a Whedon fan doing this. I just... Hadn't seen it. And then the other thing that was 2013, which is kind of him, but it sits in this weird spot, is Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Because it's still yes. running through now. And it's one that he he kind of helped oversee or helped define it, but he's not really the showrunner. He's not the day-to-day -day person on it. It's someone who's related to him, right? Yeah, it's his brother, Jed, and his wife, Marissa, who they also helped on Dr. Horrible. So they have credentials. They, they have their credentials of making something fantastic. And I want to say that Joss did the first episode of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., which is not good. And no, this show, it, it, 
it's a slow burn. Like people say it gets better over time, which it does. But even yes. then I gave up by like season two. I think I finished season two and I said, that's enough of that. Like I, I just can't anymore. It's too much of a network show. And yeah, it it's is. not a Whedon show at its core. It doesn't have that like ensemble that truly clicks and works together nope. and it doesn't have the dialogue and the narrative to back it up and that's sad because i know that his brother and sister-in-law can do that that they are capable of that but it may be network stuff like you said it's definitely a network show i don't know it just doesn't work for me even you know a while back listeners may have remembered me going and starting on Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Season 3, still never finished it. Yeah, and Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. is another one of those that in my dream world, I wish that I could see a version of Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. with the same cast and crew and talent behind it compressed down into five or ten episode seasons on Netflix. Like, I think there's enough there for that to be a really good show. But they have to make it 22 to 24 episodes because it's on, I think it's ABC, right, for this one? It's, it's on a network either way. Yeah, it's ABC that does this one because yeah. it's owned by Disney and Disney owns all the others, like all the Marvel stuff. Sorry. And I'm just realizing that, like, I just don't like that network TV mold, that format anymore. Yeah. It just does not work for me because there's so much filler and that drives me crazy. So Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. is I mean, we have to mention it because he was loosely attached to it, but it's not a Whedon show at its core. And then the other thing that kind of was happening during this time is that he was a dialogue and narrative consultant on the MCU all the way up through Agent Age of Ultron, which is the last MCU thing that he touched. But he helped, you know, again, kind of the script doctor, just consulting narrative type stuff on all of the MCU in that phase. Was it one or two? Something like that. Uh, Um, Phase one and two, I think. He was working on tying everything together from, I think, Captain America forward, or maybe it was Thor forward, and then Iron Man 2, something. And then through through phase two and Age of Ultron, he was basically the creative director not creative director but the one who made sure all of these story points caught up with each other that they connected yeah and then he did age of ultron which apparently it i mean if you look at what age of ultron does like i know a lot of people don't like it i did i thought it was a pretty good movie i still think it's way up there in the mcu i know you don't but if you look at outside of that just what it has to accomplish as a movie like where it starts and where it ends and how many characters it pulls in and changes and sets it up for the whole phase three or whatever the next phase is of the mcu what that movie accomplishes is astonishing it's it's you're absolutely right it is amazing how much that movie does between the time it starts and the time it ends even if you don't like it you can't like just let it go without acknowledging what it accomplishes yeah there is it's insane what he did but at the same time i don't like that he had to do it all and i don't think it works together but we had this discussion before we have had this discussion before and you know to your point he has said that himself he's like the ask was too big he just didn't want to be part of the mcu after that because it, it was too much in one movie that the you know the studios made him do to set it up for phase right. three and i don't think he was happy with the end result so he hasn't been back to the mcu since then and there's he doesn't have a lot of work after that but i mean that brings us to 2015 so there hasn't been a whole lot of time after that um mm-hmm. he, he did something with wonder woman right like it, this was years ago but i 
and I don't remember exactly what years they were, but he was supposed to be working on a on a Wonder Woman script for DC, and ev- and everybody knew about this. It was right in his wheelhouse. It was the, this female character driving an action movie. Everything was going to be great, and he would be asked. About it. I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got this script for it. I got this. It'll be this will be great. And you know, I'm working. I'll let you know soon. And turns out he never even started it. That the Whedon Wonder Woman was just like in the video game world. It's vaporware where it just it just never came out and so he he was he got a lot of flack for that and a Whedon Wonder Woman would have been awesome which you know I guess DC didn't get terribly burned by that because a couple of weeks ago they just announced him that he was working on a Batgirl movie for the DC EU or however they're calling it yeah and that's the latest as of like you said I think it was like a week ago that he may or may yeah. not be attached he's definitely in talks to be part of a Batgirl movie which like you said it would be right in his wheelhouse you know like a female character coming into her own and coming to terms with being a hero and being someone in power and that's a really good fit like if if he yeah. could have free reign over a Batgirl movie I would go watch it um yeah, whereas if absolutely. they just if they just kind of announced a Batgirl movie without him I would kind of be like yeah that's another DC movie but hey you tell me Joss Whedon's attached I'm gonna go see that in theaters so yeah and I think DC knows that and I think DC knows that he is burned out with Marvel that he got a the raw end of the deal on that one at least in his mind I have no idea because I mean I'm obviously not involved so it they're going to take advantage of that because Zack Snyder uh dropped the ball on everything with the DC stuff so they need a new guy who can do it and you can't really go any further from uh, Zack Snyder than Joss Whedon Hey, man, if I say Jack Snyder, Zack (laughs) Snyder, I'm not sure what I said, but further away from him is Joss Whedon, not Josh Whedon. You people, there's no SH. Right. Yes. Um, yeah. And that's kind of it for right now. But now that we've done this next time he puts out anything, we can talk about it and we can always direct you back to this episode because we've talked about everything. And in talking about this, I'm realizing there are a couple parts in here that we might want to do as like, uh, what not game of the month but like movie of the month type of yeah club. just tell people be to watch something and then i'll talk about it for an episode but yeah that would be really cool to be able to watch something all together as a group i especially think firefly is a really good candidate for that okay let's dive into our geeky offer of the week this week we have audible and you have the book this week yeah i've been super into digital security lately the stuff going on in the real world out there has made me start thinking a lot about it and a couple of years ago i listened to the audiobook little brother by cory doctorow it basically taught me what digital security and encryption was and it's a young adult book and it is truly fantastic and it's on audible and the narration of it i don't remember if it's will wheaton but i think it is and it's great if you are even remotely in interested in the in the digital world and and surveillance and encryption and digital security basically a young adult version of mr robot listen to little brother i recently just started reading it again and it's free on his website as an ebook if you go to craphound.com but you can also get little brother the audiobook which is honestly my preferred way of doing it because I've done them both now and you can get a free version of little brother at audible at audibletrial.com/geek2geekcast and with that it's time for our weekly geekery where we share what we've been geeking out about 
this week. I know you were doing like Photoshop stuff, right? Oh, my eyes are ready to fall out of my head. Yeah, I'm working on a program for the book festival that I'm working with and putting on. And we're designing the program and we're doing it in Photoshop. And it is insane. Like, I don't know Photoshop. I have used Canva in the past. And there's no way to do that when you need something of this quality. And Photoshop is so intimidating, but it's it's fun. I'm enjoying learning because it's been so intimidating for so long that I'm learning how Photoshop works and the, the Adobe keyboard shortcuts that I know you and I have talked about in the past that they don't make any sense in any way, but they become intuitive. And I really, I've just been learning Photoshop, so I'm not much good with it yet, but I hope I will be because I can see that I'm getting better at it. That's good. You can always Google, too. I, I do a lot of yeah, that. Oh, yeah. You, YouTube videos on how do I do this in Photoshop, and there's like eight YouTube videos for it. Um, I'm cool with that. And then yesterday, I went to a conference in Nashville called Craft Content in Nashville, and it's great. It is. It used to be known as PodCamp, and it was a podcasting conference, a podcast and blogging conference, uh, and uh, Jarvis Script on Twitter told me about it, and I went and looked it up, and the tickets were super cheap because I bought it early. It was a $20 ticket, and it was this content creator's conference where it was panels on entrepreneurship for creative types. And we were talking about branding and marketing. And there was a professor from MTSU who was a PhD who had done research and written books on thought leadership and how that affects your social circles online. And that was just a fantastic way to make me start thinking about things. And it was just a wonderful day of meeting people, seeing the creative the creative I don't even know the community that was springing up in Nashville is is amazing to me and it's really got me thinking about trying to do something like that here in my hometown because we have a developers group but we don't actually have much in the way of organized content creators here so if anything the craft content conference that's going on in Nashville I think they have stuff going on all the time there's a there's a slack channel that I think is craft content nashville.slack.com or something like that I signed up for this morning and I can't wait to get to know these people they're good people I love local conferences like this where it's huge within that community like there were tons of people here and it was all local people that you can make both personal and uh, business connections with Dude, have you been sweet. to stuff like that near I, you? I have been to some of it, not recently, but yeah, it's always nice to connect with like your local creative community because I, I don't even know exactly. There's something about it being like local and yeah. just having some of the same like shared experience and you tend to kind of have some of the same ways of thinking and values and things, which when I say it like that, it sounds almost insular, but it's not. It's more just like finding similar creative people to connect with it kind of helps you grow in interesting ways because you have a shared somewhere that you're coming from but you all are still unique people and you're bringing your own mm -hmm. take to it so yeah totally always finding that kind of stuff is really cool yeah i was super glad to be able to find it like it was it made me really happy that it was such a positive community and i was very tired yesterday and my wife asked me you know did you network a lot and i kept I responded to her. I was like, no, extrovert BJ is asleep today. And then we go to Whole Foods on our way home to pick up peanut butter because there's not one around us. And 
I got into conversations with people in the grocery store because people talk to me when I'm in public, apparently, and they do all the time. And she was like, I thought you said extrovert BJ was asleep. I'm like, he is. Like, you just had two 20-minute conversations with strangers in the grocery store. And I was like, yeah, but they talked to me first. And that's kind of uh, my experience at conferences. Sometimes I'm out and about talking, and other times people just talk to me. But I love it. I love being able to talk to people like that. And have you listened to S-Town yet? No, I'm not going to. You're not going to? Can you tell me why? Because I I looked at what it's about and it's just, no, I'm fine. I'm good. I'm glad other people like it, though. Okay, well, I think you should. Uh, But I finished it today. Uh, Jennifer and I sat and we've been listening to it together. And it is the only podcast that Jennifer has ever listened to, that she cannot listen to things. And she she does not like podcasts. So we, we streamed this and listened to it together. And I believe I said last week, it's a town that's about two hours south of me here. And it's beautiful. This is a beautiful story that is not at all what you think it is at the beginning. It is not true crime. It is not it is not a treasure hunt. It is a look at how a single person affects other people that they come in contact with throughout their life. And it is I, I don't know if you've read them, but it's like if Eudora Welty and Flannery O'Connor wrote a book together that it's everything that is Southern grotesque and Southern Gothic put together uh, with a little bit of uh, William Faulkner's take on just looking at a single area, single town, and preserving what it looks like at a particular moment in time. And it's just, it's beautiful. There's no other way to put it. The way that it's written and told, the story is told, I I cannot recommend it enough because as a Southerner, looking at it from an outside perspective, if I didn't know it was real when I started it, I would assume whoever wrote it hated the South. And the more that I listened to it, I realized that that wasn't the case. And I read an article this morning, I think, that uh, that put it very succinctly in that uh, they have a slow drawl and quick wit. Uh, they're not just literate, but literary. And I'm like, yeah, that's kind of the best way to encapsulate the South in my mind, uh, because I know a lot of people have that negative stereotype and S town can both reinforce and break that. And I just, I just think it's brilliant. Yeah. I I keep hearing that from people. Like it's just, it's true life stuff. And I just, I've talked about it before. I just, it's not my, it's not what I want to spend my free time on, you know, but I'm glad that I'm glad it's there for people. I'm glad that people are liking it and I've heard nothing but good things about it. Yeah. And usually I'm pretty critical of stuff that is exploitative of the South. One of my favorite things on Facebook, favorite brands is called the bitter Southerner because it's the idea that the South is a whole lot more than racism, illiteracy, and uh, just the kind of negative, negative stereotypes that we have. But, and so the bitter Southerner is, is looking at different ways of you know how that's not all it is and S-Town does that I think very well too so I'm very critical of things that look at it from a stereotypical standpoint so I'm, I'm I I can give my endorsement to S-Town because I went in super critical of it 
Sweet. No, that's good to hear. Um, For me this week, I started running again literally just in the past like two days here. It's awesome. finally gotten nice enough outside that I can do that. Hopefully consistency, like consistently yeah. over the next nine or 10 months before we get back to winter. Um, It always sneaks up super fast, but that's Minnesota, so it's okay. So, that's true. Yeah, I went out for a real run or two, and then like today I did a, well, it was a rest day, but it was just a walk day. Um, And it felt really good to get outside again, and hopefully I will be doing that a lot more now that it's actually like spring. I think, mm-hmm. I think, I hope that we don't go below freezing again, but we're I right hope. at that tipping point in Minnesota where like the lows at night are very close to freezing, but maybe slightly above it. So as soon as we get that, as soon as we have every night is above freezing, then we're really in spring. That's kind of how you know around here. Then you can plant plants and you can enjoy the weather and it's only going to get better from there on out. Wow. And that's that's actually where we are right now as well. We're waiting on the last frost of the season so that we can start putting stuff out. Yeah, and then besides that, I've just been playing Persona 5. I mean, like all of my free time this week, I I had a crazy week at work, but outside of that, the free time I actually did have, I put all of it into Persona 5, which is not as much as I would like. I'm probably at about the 12-hour mark, which is kind of funny because that's where I finished Mass Effect Andromeda, remember? Just under the 12-hour mark. I'm right at the same spot in terms of time for Persona, and I feel like... I have just scratched the surface, like in a good really? way, not not in a bad way, not in an overwhelming way, just in a good way, because I'm enjoying my time with it. And I'm glad that I have so much more to explore. So in terms of Persona, um, I don't want to spoil anything for anyone until I finish it. And then I can talk about like full spoilers. So don't worry about that here. Um, the best way to say where I am without spoiling things, I can kind of talk about like the main dungeons that I'm in, like which number of them I've gotten through. But then the other way in Persona games is you can just say the date because it's basically like a one year calendar. You don't always make it all the way really? through one year. But yeah, they go day by day. I mean, it's, you know, it's a it's a real world calendar. Have you played enough to like understand the kind of I don't even know the formula or the shape or like the structure of a Persona game? Uh, No, not yet. I've I, I went back after I finished pers- after I finished Zelda to start playing Persona 4 again and my Vita had died and I didn't have my charger nearby so I didn't pick it up again uh but no I haven't played enough to understand how the calendar works. I mean it's basically day to day it's it's kind of like what you do with your daily life. So there's an actual real world calendar, you know? And typically you have well if you have a, like a free day where nothing crazy for the story is going on you have two periods of time where you can kind of choose whatever you want to do based on what's available so it becomes a time management game but not in that stressful way like where you have you know the ticking clock where you have to get things done it's like how do you want to improve your character today or how do you want to spend your time interacting with other people so typically there's Hmm. like the school day because it's it's based on like japanese high school so there's a school day and then right after that there's this period called like after school and then there's a period after that called evening so you have like a free after school and then you have a free evening and each of those can be spent in whatever way you want when you get to those days there are a lot of days where it's like there are story things going on and you don't get the free time in the same way and persona games are very heavy up front with that kind of stuff so the whole first set up all the way through the first dungeon there's not a lot of freedom but it's because it's teaching you the systems it's getting you into the story it has a lot of story things happening back to back but it's good 
But the thing is, like, Persona is a slow burn of a game, which usually I need something with, like, relentless pacing to keep my attention. Yeah. But Persona, I feel it's it's very compelling, and it just hooks me anyway. And, yeah, I, I like it. I mean, I know I've talked about Persona 4 Golden at length, and this is kind of... This has a better start to it, but it still does have... Uh, a slow burn of a start you know there's some time to ramp up into the story and the characters and what's happening and what's going on but you get to a point where it's worth it and it's really cool so persona 5 at this point i can say is probably the most stylish game i've ever played in my entire life what okay i've seen you post that and i don't know what it means it is not graphics right it's not the prettiest graphics i've ever seen it is the most style that has ever been put into a game like it's it's artistic in a way that no other game like is even close to it i mean the other persona games have similar things but this one is taking it to an extreme it's like every <laughs> every menu every click of a button every like battle animation or like animation outside of a battle like okay when you finish a battle in final fantasy right you get okay. a menu that pops up and it's like, here's some experience. Here's some items. Yeah. Right. When you finish a battle in Persona, like this giant red streak goes across the screen and your character pops up next to it and your character starts running down a hallway while like money and like items explode out towards you. And then like if you leveled up, <laughs> these things like pop as they level up. And it's it's just visually amazing and it's not because they've tried to dial the graphics up to 11 it's because they've taken the time to step back and go how do we stylize literally everything that we can and it shows like it shows huh this is without a doubt the most stylish game that i've ever played that's really fantastic to hear because those are those are the like those are the ones that stick with you in the end not so much the ones with the absolute best graphics. Like I've said a hundred times, I love stylized graphics though. And so like, I am, hmm, I don't even know how to say, it. I'm excited to play this eventually, even though I know it will be a very long time. And did you hear about, I'm sure you've read about the, the Atlas controversy where they were telling streamers not to stream. Yeah, that's stupid. They should not have done yeah. that. That's really, really dumb of them because this game just looks so amazing. Like you should just let people go out there and share it. But I, I guess I would recommend go out and like watch a little bit of the videos that are there to kind of see the style in the game. Um, right. I It is going to be a contender for game of the year for me. At this point, it's hard to tell where it's going to stack up. I mean, people have told me that this is better than Persona 4 Golden, and I could hmm. see it getting there, which means it would be one of my best games of all time, like one of my favorites. But wow. because Persona is a slow burn of a game, it takes a while to introduce the characters, and it takes a while to develop the relationships with the characters which is really like one of the lasting things that stays with you over time um yep. and there's always some greater narrative going on outside of like the immediate things that you're jumping into that doesn't reveal itself for a while so i'm not there yet i haven't reached that tipping point i'm far enough in the game that i know i really like it i'm gonna keep playing and it has a ton of potential but outside of saying it's the most stylish game ever i i can't drop any big declarative statements like this is the best game ever it's my favorite game ever anything like that not yet but give me some time cool i'm i'm glad to see that that it lived up to some of what you were expecting from it or that you wanted from it when you said you were looking forward to it more than zelda yes and the only complaint i have is that i can't take it with me like 
I yeah. wish this game were portable. And honestly, I wish it was on the Switch. That would be perfect. Like if I could play it on my big TV whenever I wanted to and then pick it up and take it to work with me and take it to bed with me and take it everywhere else around the house when I don't have the TV because the kids or my wife are using it for other stuff. Like I want this game to go everywhere with me because I want to keep seeing what happens next in the story. So the only negative about the game is that it's only on consoles right now, but I hope that eventually it will come to the Switch. Um, I doubt it would be able to come to the Vita, you know, just based yeah. on the graphics and just stuff. Just hardware. Yeah, just hardware reasons. But, I mean, uh, hopefully, hopefully there's some kind of, you know, Switch version in the works for the future for other people that I might be- not benefit from that. But, I mean, it's such a small gripe. You know, you can't control what platforms games come out on. That's not like a real, it's not a real mark against the game. It's just like it's a wish you know it's just like a wish list thing for me yeah which makes sense because there's no other way of course we want it on the consoles we like the best yes exactly but that's it i'll have more persona 5 thoughts next week i'm sure i'm going to play it a ton between now and then so i will have more in-depth thoughts about stuff if you want to know any more about that or have specific persona questions um you can always write to us with comments suggestions or feedback or hey if you want any joss whedon feedback or if you guys are interested in doing like a Firefly, let's watch it together type of thing. Um, our email address is geek to geekcast at gmail.com, or you can reach us on Twitter at geek to geekcast. We also have longer discussion threads on the subreddit at reddit.com slash r slash geek to geekcast. And since we're part of a podcast network, you should totally be listening to all of our other podcasts. You can head on over to geek to geekcast.net to see if we have anything that tickles your fancy. Spoiler alert, we do. While you're there, make sure you sign up for our amazing email list. You know, we're starting to up our game, and there is email-only content and contests coming your way pretty soon. So uh, hand over your email addresses, folks. I blog at agreenmushroom.com, and you can find me at GRN Mushroom. That's Green Mushroom without the E's on Twitter. And I'm on Twitter as at Professor Beege. That's Beege with two E's, and I blog and occasionally podcast at geekfitness.net. We've been Void and Beege with your Geek to Geek podcast. That'll do it for this week. See you next week, geeks. Comics. Hey everyone, this is Rob, your friendly neighborhood comic geek. And this is Liam, the the languishing, lascivious Liam of Langley. Wow, that was extremely illiterate of you. Well, I try. We are the hosts of the Comic Box, part of the Geek to Geek Podcast Network. So join us. Bop, bop. Oh, yeah.